So Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. What's that? Mm -hmm. Because we didn't finish it. We did. Uh, we did verse one last week. So, any uh, any further thoughts on verse one? Review of what we talked about last week. Did all that make sense about how we were talking about the New Testament using the Old Testament? So, um, was there anybody that wasn't here last Sunday for Sunday school? I was trying to remember. Millie? Okay, so the really short version is basically we were talking about how Matthew uses this passage to say, uh, in, and in some ways says, Jesus being brought up from Egypt after Joseph and Mary fled down there to get away from Herod, is out of Egypt I called my son. But we look here in this passage and it says, out of Egypt I called my son seems to be referring to the Israelites being brought up out of Egypt from, their, uh, from being slaves down in Egypt. And so the question is, how can, <coughs> can we use the same words to refer to both a past and future event or current event and the answer that I tried to argue for was this idea that Hosea is using it in the historical sense and calling the people to repentance. Matthew is using the phrase as kind of an analogy, just like God brought the Israelites up out of Egypt where he had preserved their lives, God brings Jesus up out of Egypt where he had preserved his life from Herod. Two different kings, two different threats, but God preserved both of them in a similar way. Jonathan, were you going to say something? Yeah. Good. Okay. Okay. How many of you have ever heard of a biblical type? Okay. So, there are people who tend to get carried away with it, so then there are other people like, there's no types at all in the Bible. Uh, and so the reality is, there's, we should be careful about seeing typology where the Bible doesn't really spell it out for us. But I think there is sufficient ground, even based on the way that Matthew uses this passage, to see a lot of analogies or parallels between the life of Jesus and, and various historical events throughout the Old Testament. We talked about some of these last week. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, just like the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is in the grave for three days, just like Jonah's in the belly of the fish for three days, and they, so several of the apostles, at least one, points this out. Um, there are parallels between salvation, we're going to get into this next week, between salvation and God rescuing Noah and his family with the ark. There are just a lot of parallels between either Jesus' life 
or the salvation that God brings and events or, or, or structures that God put into place long before that are sort of building to this crescendo of Jesus coming and fulfilling all these things, both in terms of actual historical events like Jesus is born in Bethlehem and in terms of succeeding where mankind failed in the example of Jesus being brought up out of Egypt, living a perfect life, all those sorts of things. Any other quick thoughts on that part before we move on to the rest of the chapter? Evan. Mm. <laughs> he did what Adam should have done. Same thing, I think, even uh, what it seems that Matthew is equating Jesus to is Israel mm-hmm. and doing this is good and this is how Israel should have gone. So exactly. I think that was helpful. Yeah, yeah, okay, good. Anything else? That there's a relationship there, or what are you getting at? I'm well, God saying he, he called my son out of Egypt. You know, Hosea is using this language, and that's why I was saying that he's referring to the promise that he made Israel. Okay. It's not just the people. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting how, kind of along the same line, someone will say something really specific, and you're like, why did they phrase it that way in the Old Testament? And then you look at the way that it's used in the New Testament. So I think an example of this might be what we looked at in Isaiah. Technically, the grammatical, like, historical meaning of the word is basically young woman. It doesn't have to be a virgin birth according to Isaiah 7.14. I think the reason for that is because there is the actual fulfillment in a few verses later of, I'm going to give you a sign before the child is old enough to know the difference between good and evil, the two kings that you fear are going to be destroyed. But then the part that is, and I'm going to do a sign that's greater than the heaven above and the earth beneath, is fulfilled in Jesus. The Greek word is much more specific and means virgin. And so Matthew can use it to apply to Mary, who is an actual virgin, but also a young woman, And Isaiah can use it to refer to probably Isaiah's wife, who has a son, and by the time he's grown, God has delivered the people. And so there is a... hmm, This is where it gets tricky, because it sounds very much like I'm saying there's an immediate fulfillment and a future fulfillment, but I'm saying two phrases back-to-back. One's getting fulfilled right then, the other's getting fulfilled in Jesus uh, down the road. And... uh, the reason that that's possible is because the word has a broader meaning in the Old Testament and a narrow meaning in the New Testament, and God knew what he intended to unfold all along. There are some people who hesitate to take that approach because they say, well, we're denying the virgin birth. No, we're not denying the virgin birth. We're just saying God kept his word to Israel then. God also keeps his word to Israel at the coming of the Messiah, and God keeps his word today. And God knew what he was doing and was very precise in the way that he used even a less precise word to enable that to all unfold in that way. Going back to chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, here of Hosea, the more they called them, the more they went from them, which is uh, 
kind of a strange, uh, abrupt transition. I called my son out of Egypt, but then the more they called them, the more they went from them. What is it that you think he's referring to in verse 2? Who's the they and the them? If we look, if we look at the next phrase, what um, what might it potentially be referring to? The the them that they're calling on, Retta? Okay, we might think Moses, but Moses is just one guy, so we would think that it would be the more they called on him. Okay. I think he's setting up a contrast here. Here's, here's God saying, I called you out of Egypt. And the response to the Israelites was, let's call on all of the plural gods of the nations, even though it's God that brought us up out of Egypt. So the they is probably, my best understanding, the they is Israel and the them is the idols. And God calls them out of the land. And they should have been, as Reda pointed out, calling on Moses as to intercede for them with God and for God to be their ruler and their king. And instead, they keep running after the idols. The more they go away from Egypt that God's delivered them from, the more the them is potentially from the Egyptians. That one I'm less certain of. Because it seems strange that, uh, well, there's a couple of different possibilities. One is the more they called them, the more they went from them in that the idols could not help or save them. Or that the them refers to idols in the first phrase and Egyptians in the second phrase. Like the further they got out from Egypt, the more they called on idols. Both of those are historically true. I don't, there might be a reason he's leaving intentionally vague. But I think the general sense here is the more God called out to them, the more they kept ignoring God's call and running after and calling on idols instead. I think that's very clear from the pattern of the Old Testament. And then again, the contrast in verse 3, I taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I delivered you, and you run after idols. I healed you, but you act like you don't know. And maybe they didn't know because the, the rulers and the priests and whoever wasn't teaching them. And then he says, I led them with cords of a man, bonds of love, the one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. Verse Four, um, I'd have to go back and look at some of the commentaries again, but I'm pretty sure that people have potentially seen in this like a husband-wife kind of analogy. But the last part of the verse is pretty clearly like a um, owner, uh, like uh, agricultural animal kind of analogy. So it's perhaps more likely the whole verse is basically like, just like the shepherd takes care of his sheep and his ox and all those sorts of things. I'm gently leading you. I'm taking the bridle out of your mouth. The, or not the yoke, but uh, I'm basically taking all of the thing that's, that's like holding you down and freeing you and delivering you. And then I'm taking all that out so that you can then feed. I mean, there's kind of maybe parallels to Psalm 23 here. And then the admonitions to show tender care to the animals under your care that are providing food for you and all those sort of things. So it's, it's God's kindness. I delivered my son out of Egypt. 
Uh, there's a lot of language in the Old Testament about him taking them and like bringing them to a, a good land, which lends itself very readily to the, if you get to the good land, you might take the, the bridle off your horse, the, the yoke and the, the bit and all that off your ox and just let them graze in the land, right? But Israel keeps saying, God does something for them and they say, thank you, Baal. And God delivers them. They say, who did this? And God leads them, and they attribute his blessing to something else and ignore him. Someone read for us first. Any further thoughts on that before we move on? All right, someone read for us maybe verses 5 through 7, please. 5 through 7. Jim, thanks. All right, what's verse 5 telling us? Okay. What did the Israelites keep wanting to do as they left Egypt? What is God not going to let them do? Go back. Now, there are exceptions to this in that some of them get carried away into captivity in Egypt because of their alliances with Egypt, but by and large, Egypt is not the one that's going to presumably save and then turn on them. It's the king of Assyria. That's what he's saying here in verse 5. And the reason is because they refuse to return. Uh, how about verse 6? I would have expected verse 6 to say, consume them in spite of their counsels. Like, we made plans, but our plans failed. But this verse is saying, because of their counsels, because of your plans and your schemes and your turning against God, that's the reason that you're failing. Like, we sometimes think, if I plan better, things will succeed. And here he's saying, because you're planning more, you're going to fail. How about verse 7? Isn't there a Christmas carol that says something about remove our bent towards sinning? And then obviously there's, a, there's the one that says that our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, right? And so this idea, my people are bent on turning from me. Um, I don't know if you've ever had like a, uh, a bicycle wheel or a piece of metal or something that gets smashed and then you try to make it straight again and it's really really hard to make it straight again and it keeps wanting to bend back to the way that it was bent I think that I mean for me that's kind of the picture that I have of verse 7 the f language at the end of it's kind of difficult who's the though they call them um, because the one and him are supplied 
that's not actually in the Hebrew. And that doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means that there are words sort of left out. The thought is partially incomplete. So it's basically, though they call them to on high, none at all exalts. In context, I think him makes sense. None, no one is exalting God. And then, the, though they call them to on high, could be to God, the one on high, or it could be, though they're calling themselves to the idols, none is exalting God the way they should. But I think it's quite possibly. they. I think maybe Hosea is getting this idea of the people think that they are pursuing God by the idolatry that they are doing. Like, that's how twisted their thinking is but they're not actually exalting God because God's not going to be worshipped in that way. Jonathan? So is Hosea maybe the counselor? Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, after verse 6. Yeah, I think it's a reasonable guess. I mean, the reality is there are, some, there are a lot of things in the prophetic writings and here and there in the Psalms where... Uh, even Hebrew scholars will look at it and be like, we're not 100% certain exactly what this means, but from context, this is our best understanding of it. Uh, which doesn't mean that it is worthless or corrupted or anything like that. It just sometimes means that when you have a gap of three, 4,000 years, I mean, if we find it hard to read, think about the, think about the distance between us and the Middle Ages, right? Um, see if I can give you an illustration of this here real quick. All right, so see if I can scroll down here. So John, here we go, John 14, 1, be, you, be not your heart afraid, ne dread it, ye beluin and God, and ye me in the house of my father, been many dwellingus, if only less I had said to you, for I go to make ready to you a place. And if I go and make ready to you a place, Ephson, I come, and I shall take you to myself, that where I am ye be. And whither I go, ye witten, and ye witten the way. I mean, that's just English from not terribly long ago. Five, six hundred years. Now we're talking Hebrew from 200, not 200. Um, Hosea is a contemporary of Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, something like 2,700 years ago. My point is just to say, we wouldn't be surprised that there's occasionally a verse we come across and we're like, we're not exactly sure what this says, we've got to think about it. That, that's the point that I'm trying to make doesn't mean that we can't figure it out with careful thought and looking at the context. Or that if we in our general decline, we think that we're smarter than the people that came before us and we're not really, even if we get to a point where humanity has declined to the point that there are just certain swaths of the Bible that we just can't understand because uh, of the effects of the curse of sin or something like that, that doesn't mean that we can't understand the Bible as a whole. I don't think we're at that point, but I'm just something to think about. All right, verses 8 through, probably 8 through 11. And we'll pick up to verse 12 with the next chapter. But verses 8 through 11, who'd read that for us? 
anybody hadn't read yet that would like to read? Seven, thank you. Okay. All right. So verse 8 is sort of a... It's almost like a lament from God's perspective, right? Like in the Psalms, we have laments from the psalmist's perspective. God, how long is this going to happen? How can this be happening? All those sorts of things. This is almost a lament or a deliberation of God toward his people. So what is he saying in verse 8? What's the admin Zebuim? Jim? He will not give up on his people. Okay. He's a faithful God. He will not give up. Although we're making or they were making it extremely difficult. Okay. Yeah? Anybody have a cross reference that shows? There's a reference to Edmund Zebuim's cities that were destroyed. Yeah. So Deuteronomy 29 says all its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows in it like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adam and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Yeah, at the very least, they were nearby to Sodom and Gomorrah. We see them in Genesis 14, which I'm trying to think the chronology here. So Genesis 14, yeah, so Sodom, Gomorrah, Admon, Zeboim, and Bela are, there's five kings against four in the valley of Sidim, right? And then uh, Lot gets sort of caught up in the midst of it, and then Abraham has to go and deliver him. So yeah, this would be before fire and brimstone come down and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So yeah, I think the, the idea of them being allies and suburbs and so forth, like that entire region. And we tend to think Sodom and Gomorrah are like two little cities, but like it's this entire region gets destroyed. Okay. So, to the extent that God says, how can I make you like them, what's he saying? The point that Jonathan made, or Jim, he's not going to give up on his people, right? And we see that at the end of the verse. My heart is turned over within me. My compassions are kindled which is fascinating because not exclusively, but quite often when we see the idea of God and something being kindled, what is it? God's wrath being kindled. But here he says his compassion is kindled, which is a fascinating thing in light of the way that they're behaving. He says, I will not execute my fierce anger and destroy Ephraim again. And then he gives the reason in verse 9. What's the reason? Because what is he? He is God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. So this is amazing to consider because we would think because God is the Holy One, 
he's of course going to destroy them like Sodom and Gomorrah. But I think there's an appeal to something more profound here, which is because God is the Holy One, has made promises that He will not break to a people who don't deserve them, He's not going to wipe them out like Sodom and Gomorrah, even though that's exactly what we would expect Him to do because of the holiness aspect. This is more like, this is, I think, an important illustration idea. Sometimes it's easy for us to exalt one aspect of who God is over against all the rest. Today, people do that with God as love. Right? So they'll be like, well, God is love, which means mm, God never tells anybody anything they don't want to hear. Or God is love, which means you should let everybody do what they want and never say, hey, God doesn't like this. But the reality is God's love is a relationship with people that he saves from sin and destruction and so to the extent that God's love is relationship, you can't have a relationship with someone if you're doing things that, that, you know. So practically speaking, let's talk about like a husband and wife. If you um, pick something small, if you tracked mud through the house every single day and your wife hated mud in your house, how well is that relationship going to go? Now let's escalate it because our relationship with God is not like we tracked mud in the house. It's more like we tracked mud in the house and we smeared it on the walls and you tried to wipe it on your husband or wife's face and you put it in all the food. And I'm just saying like it's not just like, oh, I, you know, there's a little muddy spot because it was raining and we got a little dirt on the floor. It was like, like your entire existence is devoted toward doing the thing the other person hates. And that's kind of how we relate it to God. So if God, being loving, is, speaks of his relationship with his people, then we can't experience that relationship unless we deal with the fact that we keep doing the things that God hates. And in the, I, the irony of this is we would think, well, God being holy means that he's going to destroy people who sin, but the point is, because he's made promises to those people, instead of destroying them, he reaches down and keeps rescuing them over and over again and demonstrates his love. And so God's holiness and God's love are not at odds with each other, but they work alongside each other. How about verse 10? going on here in 10 and 11. Devin, you look like you have a thought. Oh, okay. I think the picture is here, God is not going to come down on them in wrath, but they are going to fear him. Because if you look at verse 10, it says, They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and He's going to sort of summon them, trembling from the west, like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. It's as though the, God's not... Well, I'm trying to think of a good illustration. When you have, as a kid, let's say that you... Um, I don't know. Let's say you took your dad's drill and you just went and played with it and broke all the bits in half. 
And then he comes and finds it. And he's like, who did this to my drill? Wasn't you? Good to know. You come, it broke itself, right? No. Um, you come in, and you're not sure which way things are going to go. I think that's sort of the sense that we see in these verses. They know they've sinned. They know that the God has been disciplining them. They know that uh, they deserve every, every ounce of the punishment that God might pour out on them. And he roars, and they're afraid, and then they come before him, and then he says, I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. Which is not really the way we would expect this to go. Think about how this story started. Hosea, go and take a woman who's unfaithful and illustrate how my people keep running away over and over and over and over again. And even though they deserve my wrath, I'm going to be faithful in my promises, though they have broken every last one of theirs. And when I roar in power to gather them, it will not be for destruction, but to return them home. Pretty profound thing to think about. Uh, just got a few more minutes. How about verse 12 of chapter 11? And then, um, how about uh, the next two verses, verse 12 and then verse 1? Who wants to read those? Maybe one of the kids, Robert? Okay. So, what do we see from verse 12? In what way would they surround God with lies? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the two ideas would be connected. Because of their idolatry, they're imagining God to be along the same lines as their idols. So um, the way that this looks today would be kind of like what we see the false prophets doing with someone like Ahab, right? Will we have victory? Oh, yes. God will bless you. Is God happy with you? Oh, absolutely. All the while, they're committing all of these sins of idolatry and immorality and greed and oppression of their neighbors and, and all of these sorts of things. Um, they're basically, I mean, it parallels what we see in 2 Timothy, right? People will be lovers of selves. They will be deceived. They will grow from bad to worse, like all of these sorts of things. So, uh, there's false prophets in the Old Testament, there's false prophets in the New Testament, false teachers, and Hosea is saying this is sort of the characterizing the land in that day. There's, there's, if we think about the span of the, of the Bible, we have every thought of man's heart was evil continually, and the flood comes. 
people here are telling lies about God, failing to teach the people what God is really like, and the uh, Assyrians come down and sweep them away in destruction. In the end times, there is the Antichrist and uh, Babylon representative of the world system opposed to God, and what happens, God's wrath is poured out, and, and all of these things are, are destroyed, right? Now, the difference here is unlike the people in the days of the flood and unlike the people in the last days, God's people here are going to experience discipline but not complete destruction, which doesn't mean all of them are going to live because a lot of them are going to die in the process of this. But God is still going to preserve his people even so. Ephraim is lying and deceiving. Judah is unruly. The Holy One is faithful. What is this idea of feeding on wind? Braden? Yeah. Yeah. If you're feeding on wind, you're trying to grasp or consume something that A, won't feed you, and B, you can't really achieve, right? What are some of the things of way that, ways that looks today? What does feeding on wind look like in our society? Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to dwell on this real long, but I but I think it's worth mentioning. There are a lot of schemes out there that basically say. Here is an easy path to be rich. Right? Mm. If you find something like essential oils helps you with your cold, great. If you feel like you're going to become a millionaire by selling them and you decide that the church is your market to do so, not great. Right? <laughs> if you decide, if someone comes to you and says, if you, whatever it is, right? And you've got to recruit 15 people, and they're going to be under you, and then you're going to get like 15 bucks from every sale that they make. And then that's one scheme, right? What's another scheme? Another scheme is, hey, you can, without any understanding of and almost no capital to back you, just hop into the stock market and make millions of dollars and retire to, in three days. Is wise investing a good idea? Yes. Do most people just sort of luck out and, and make ridiculous amounts of money on penny stocks and retire three days later? No. 1 Timothy 5 says a bunch of things about, um, and I'm not trying to say that pyramid schemes and investing in the stock market are the same thing. I'm just saying the idea that we can just jump in have everything we want without any hard work is the thing that I'm objecting to. To the extent that instead of trusting in God and faithfully, steadily following after Him, we find His blessing, that instead of that, we can sort of have all these schemes and come up with our own thing. That, I think, is the feeding on wind for us. Um, 
when I say schemes, why do I say schemes? Because at the same time that they are not following God and doing things that God specifically says not to do, God says, I want you to be truthful and I want you to be loving to the people around you. They've said we're going to lie and we're going to oppress the people around us. Do violence to them. And then, to sort of cover our bases, to make sure that we're safe, we're going to make a covenant with Assyria and with Egypt. Anybody know anything about Assyria and Egypt in the time that Hosea is writing? <laughs> yeah. Assyria, their idea of teaching people a lesson was, and we've talked about this before, let's kill everybody in the city and sort of make a pile of their heads at the edge of the city and like burn it all down. Why would you think that's the people that you want to make friends with? Because if they've done that to all of this string of other nations and regions before you, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense that the mo like, if you come to them, like, it'd be like going, like, and I'm not saying bullying is okay, I'm just using this as an illustration. If, if you were a school and somebody picked on you and you went to them and you're like, um, hey man, I'm, I know that I'm, I'm really weak and I'm this target and, and um, I, I, I just really need help. Why would you do that? He's going to take advantage of you because you just said, I can't do anything. And you're like, but you know what? I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you, I don't know, two bucks a day and then you can kind of watch out for me and, and not pick on me. What always happens in those situations? If I can ask for two bucks, why not ten? So, in a, in a much greater sense, God, the only one who could really help them, they've run away from. They're doing the things, not only have they run away from God, but they're doing the things that God hates. And then not only are they doing the things that God hates, but they've gone to God's enemies, the people that God has been trying to say, don't intermarry with them, don't go back to those lands, don't be friends with them because they're going to drag you away from me. And they said, hey, you're going to help us out? We'll pay a little bit of money, and, and then you'll keep us. God said, that's not going to work for you. And so God says he's going to punish them for their alliances, for their sinfulness, and for their idolatry. All right, we'll wrap up there for today. I'll pick it up again next week. Let's pray. Father, as we consider these truths from Hosea, we see your amazing faithfulness. We see the foolishness of sin and our attempts to cover our bases when we're sinning because we think that we can somehow escape the consequences of it. Help us to see the blindness and the foolishness of that and to turn to you who are faithful to all of your promises and as a good God who will bless us if we follow you well in Christ's name. Amen.